Good morning. We are here for our Wednesday morning shear after a two-week break, and we will be discussing Parshas Kiseitze. The title for today's class is Evaluating and Valuing a Relationship. Chodesh Elul is sponsored by Nath and Eti Perez and family for the success of their children and Le'ilu Nishmas David or David Ben Masoda, David Biton. He is, was the beloved father and grandfather of Eti. His dedication and great midos are dearly missed on his third yard site. And for all of us who know the Perez family, we know how important character and learning Torah are to them uh, as they train themselves and their children rigorously in proper midos and the study of Torah with a passion. So we greatly appreciate their sponsorship and we join them in commemorating this important yard site in their family. And we wish that the neshama of David ben Masoda should have a true aliyah and that he should be a benefit in the next world for all of his descendants in this world. This week is anonymously sponsored in Akara Sato to Rabbi Akiva and his wife families for their teaching and sharing Torah. May our learning be a merit for our children and grandchildren to find shiduchim with clarity and speedily and abundant shalom bias and refuah shalema for all in need. As Frida mentioned a moment ago, we are in the month of Elul, and the month of Elul is all about changing ourselves in preparation for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And I chose the topic of evaluating and valuing our relationships this week because that is a fundamental, important topic to every person, because it is critical for a person to have healthy relationships, especially relationships of intimacy, as we will be learning in a moment. Uh, in addition to that, of course, the relationships that challenge us the most to think about who we are and our behaviors are typically our closest relationships. So I think it's a, a very appropriate time to discuss what is the value that we place on the relationships that we have and how can we make some sort of an evaluation and a determination if we're in the right relationship or what we should do if we feel that the relationship is not working and the type of relationship for which we are aspiring. There is absolutely no doubt that relationships are among the most important topics of all living beings. So I'm going to focus today mostly on people, but it happens to be true in the animal world as well. Uh, animals also require some sort of social interaction uh, with members of their species and have different types of interpersonal, uh, so to speak, relationships, interspecial relationships maybe with other animals in the animal kingdom. But putting the animal world to the side, Myriad studies indicate the importance of relationships on healthy human development, as well as the impact of relationships on longevity and mortality. Much research has also been conducted on the crucial component of relationships that we call intimacy. Two dictionary definitions of the word intimacy are A, familiarity, right? So there's a true awareness and normal, so to speak, um, regular, better than normal, a regular familiarity with the other person. So that's part of intimacy. And definition number two is something personal 
or private. When it comes to intimacy, it's familiarity and something personal or private. Now studies show that when a human being has a healthy relationship of intimacy, they are much more capable of handling stress. Uh, studies are done when people are holding the hand of someone with whom they have an intimate relationship and they see something stressful versus when they're not holding the hand of that person and they see something stressful. The tremendous amount of interesting neuroscience on this subject. In addition, people who have healthy relationships of, of intimacy, not only are they capable of handling more stress, but also living longer and produce healthier children. And in fact, these people tend to be generally happier than people who do not have healthy relationships of intimacy. Of course, some of the most unhappy people in the world are the people who have relationships of intimacy that are not healthy, right? The, that might be better in that case to actually be single. So I do recommend for all listeners to this class that you conduct your own research on this subject by searching, are relationships of intimacy important? Because it's kind of stunning. I just did a little kind of research myself and it's uh, amazing the amount of information that there is on the subject and the studies that have been done. So based on all of this information, it seems that a good question we should be asking ourselves is how should I evaluate my own relationships? To what extent are my closest relationships healthy? And equally important is how can I grow the intimacy in my closest relationships? For most of us, the most obvious relationship of intimacy is the spousal relationship. Today, we'll, we will explore sentences from Parshas Kiseitze that discuss both marriage and divorce because the Parsha deals with both topics back to back. Indeed, Parshas Kiseitze is the main source of marriage information in the Torah, other than the descriptions in Bereshis relating to the creation of Adam and Chava and their union right at the beginning of the story of mankind. So we will begin our exploration today by first citing the primary verses from our Parsha that deal with divorce and marriage. And you'll notice that now I said divorce and marriage because that's actually pretty much the order in the Torah, first the laws of divorce and then marriage. And after we look at these sentences, we will learn the somewhat famous but deeply troubling viewpoint of our great sage Hillel regarding the legitimate basis for divorce. It's very interesting, somewhat famous, but certainly difficult to understand. So Book of Devarim, which is where we're at, uh, chapter 24, sentence one says, a man takes a woman into his home as his wife and becomes her husband if she fails to please him because he finds something obnoxious about her. So I want to tell you that the word obnoxious is a loose translation of what the Torah actually says. Uh, but I specifically am mentioning it and pointing it out uh, in the transcript because I think it's important to know that you really need to look up the Torah firsthand. Right? So in this definition, it says he finds something obnoxious about her. But the phrase in the Torah is ki ervas davar, that he finds a matter of nakedness in her. More correctly translated in this context is something immoral about his wife something that's not okay in the morality department. And we're going to discuss that more, so just hold on to your questions about that. 
When he finds such a thing, he writes her a bill of divorcement, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. The Torah continues, she leaves his house and becomes the wife of another man. Of course, it doesn't mean that always happens, but the Torah is providing that that's certainly okay. Um, in fact, the sages say, even if something immoral was done in the first marriage by the wife, that does not preclude her from getting married a second time. She's allowed to get married a second time, according to all opinions. And so the Torah is saying, let's say she got married and divorced and now remarried. If this second man rejects her and writes her a bill of divorcement, hands it to her and sends her away from his household, or the second man dies, right, the one who has now taken her for a wife, the second time around dies, then the first husband who divorced her shall not take this woman who was married after he divorced her from the, in other words, the first husband. He, the first husband cannot come back and take this woman again as his wife because that would be abhorrent to Hashem. You must not bring sin upon the land that your God Hashem has given to you as a heritage. Lots and lots of things to discuss. We're not obviously going to discuss all of them, but hang on a minute before we go into this concept of divorce, uh, because let's now discuss the next two sentences in the Torah. The very next sentence that says that the first husband cannot take back his wife after a marriage to another man says, new paragraph, when a man has newly taken a woman into his household as a wife, he shall not go out to the army or with the army or be assigned to the army for any purpose. He shall be exempt for one year for the sake of his household to, and he shall bring happiness or give happiness to the woman or the wife that he has taken. That's one sentence. The very next sentence in the same paragraph says, a hand mill or an upper millstone. So people used to grind things by taking a heavy stone and having some sort of a uh, receptacle underneath it to smash the stone into, and that would be called an upper uh, millstone. Right, So a hand mill or an upper millstone shall not be taken in collateral as a pawn, so to speak, uh, in a situation of lending, for that would be taking someone's life as a collateral. Okay, so the bottom line is that the Torah is saying over here that a person who gets married for the first time spends a year making his wife happy, therefore cannot go to war, etc. And by the way, in the case of lending, a person should not take essential utensils as a collateral because that's too oppressive. It's like taking the person's life as a collateral. That's what the Torah is saying. So here are five questions. Number one, why does the paragraph of divorce law precede the paragraph of taking a new wife and the obligation to make her happy? We would have thought, let's talk about the marriage first the obligation to make the wife happy, and then, okay, if things don't work out for whatever reason, as we're now going to discuss more in detail, so then there's divorce, and then if there's a second marriage, etc. One would have thought that the more logical order would be to discuss a general marriage first, hopefully a happy one, the obligation to make the wife happy, and then discuss the laws of divorce, but in the Torah is reversed. Why is that? Question number two, what does the Torah mean by she fails to please him because he finds something obnoxious about her. And as we explained, literally it means something immoral about her. So we will discuss three opinions in the Talmud on that question, but it's important to know that it's a question. What does the Torah mean? Because it doesn't seem to spell it out clearly. Question number three, 
Why is there an obligation on the husband? I hope, I hope everybody's okay that I'm asking this question. Why is there an obligation on the husband to make his wife happy and not the reverse that the wife is supposed to make her husband happy? Is that okay that I asked that question? Everybody all right with that? Okay. Hopefully that's not too uh, much of a sensitive subject. Okay, but one would have thought that uh, getting married is an obligation on both couples to do for the other. If we look at the Rambam, as my father often quotes, uh, the laws of the Rambam is that a husband is to treat his wife like a queen and the wife is to treat her husband like a king. You would think there would be some reciprocity in the Torah as well, but that is clearly absent in the sentence. Question number four is a little bit more of an involved question in terms of the phrasing of the sentence. So let me explain the sentence the way that it is understood according to the cantillation notes. The Torah says when a man, when a man takes a new wife, doesn't go to war for any matter at all, he should be available to his home for one year and he should make happy the wife that he took. So the phrase, and he shall make happy the wife that he took, the cantillation notes indicate that there is a pause after the word, and he shall make happy. Without being too technical, I'll just mention that some cantillation notes tell you to read one word together with the next word, and some cantillation notes tell you to pause, such as what's called an asnachta in the middle of a sentence, the sopasuk at the end of a sentence, tells you to pause between this word and the word that follows. Well, the note, the cantillation note that's under the word, the simach, which means, and he shall make happy, is actually a pausing note. Technically, it's called a melech, which means a king, means it kind of stands on its own, and you don't read it together with the next word. But that doesn't make any sense. He shall make happy, pause, the wife that he took. The more logical way for the cantillation notes to read would be to read the word, and he shall make happy together with the wife that he took. He shall make happy the wife that he took. So why is there a pause in the Torah between he shall make happy, and then the wife that he took almost kind of is like a new phrase and an afterthought rather than one phrase which says, and he shall make happy the wife that he took. That is our fourth question. And finally, what in the world is the connection between marrying a new wife and making her happy with the law? That by the way, when lending money, the lender should not take as a collateral utensils that are essential to daily living. It's the same paragraph in the Torah. It's not even that the Torah breaks it up into two different paragraphs. That's a question that my brother of Yehuda posed. Um, I said a really nice answer. I'm going to say a different answer today. He posed this at a joint Shevra Brachos that my parents made for his son and for my son this past Monday night. That's what my brother of Yehuda spoke about. And he said a really nice and beautiful idea. Uh, maybe I'll mention it, but uh, I'm going to suggest a different one today. So on all of these questions, we are befuddled in a very large degree as to what is the legitimate basis for divorce. And then other questions that we have is the order of the Torah between marriage and divorce. And what's the pause between making happy the wife that he took and not he should make happy the wife that he took. And also the idea that the wife does not seem to have an obligation to make her husband happy, but the husband does. So these are among our uh, questions that we'll be discussing now. So as far as what is the legitimate basis for divorce, 
It's actually a page in the Talmud that was recently studied in the Daf Yomi cycle at the end of Tractate Gittin. Uh, the yeshiva will be getting there uh, this year because the yeshiva is learning the tractate of Gittin somewhere towards uh, Pesach time. On page 90a in Tractate Gittin, there is a Mishnah, Gittin referring to divorce documents, which says that Beishamai, it's a Mishnah, that Beishamai said, a person should not divorce his wife unless he finds something of immoral character or behavior about his wife. That's based Shammai, the house of Shammai, the yeshiva of Shammai says, the only legitimate basis for divorce, it seems, it seems is the way to understand it. Understand him, there's a lot of uh, room for discussion, but I'm, what I'm presenting is my understanding of what it seems that Beishamai is saying, that the only real legitimate basis of divorce is something immoral regarding his wife. Beis Hillel say, even if she burns his food, and he derives that from the sentence, we're not going to go into the technicalities of how they derive everything exegetically. It is very interesting discussion in Talmud. I'm not going to go into those you know, aspects of the discussion with you. But he does derive it from the sentence, even if she burns his food. And then we have Rabbi Akiva, the third opinion. He says uh, he may divorce her, even if he the husband found another woman that he finds more pleasing and wishes to be married to her. He likes someone else. That's what Rabbi Akiva says is a legitimate basis for divorce. Now, all of this is difficult at the very least. You know, uh, you know, that's kind of the minimal description we would say. At the very least, it's difficult to understand. But here we have the Talmudic outline as to the fundamental opinions on the legal justification for a Jewish man to divorce his wife are number one, Beishamai, if the wife displays immoral behaviors. Number two, Beishelel, if the wife burns the husband's food. Uh, some say, by the way, um, maybe oversalting uh, would be in that category. And number three, Rabbi Akiva, who says, if the husband has found a different woman that he prefers to marry. Now, at the very surface level, one would think that a, the opinion of Beishamai is most understandable because if indeed a wife is displaying immoral character traits, it's reasonable to postulate that this woman is unfit for marriage at this time. That's sort of we can understand. Rabbi Akiva's opinion, although more difficult than Beishamai, can perhaps be understood based on the following perspective. If indeed a man finds a different woman more appealing to the extent that he actually wishes to be married to her rather than his own wife, however delusional that is, but that's what he's thinking, this indicates that the husband is not properly invested in his own marriage. Okay, maybe we could understand that as a basis for getting divorced, right? The husband's not into his own marriage. That's a problem. But Basil's opinion is mind-boggling. How in the world is it reasonable for a man to divorce his wife over burnt or inedible food? Imagine a scenario where a newly married man is served a burnt dinner by his newlywed wife. And he calls his rav and complains. Should the Rav reply to his student, you know, Basila says you should divorce your wife. Can anybody imagine that actually taking place? This seems to go against every principle of working on a marriage, perseverance, that we generally presume the Torah would require from us. So how can we possibly understand Basila? This seems to be severely problematic to say the least. So I had the good fortune about a year ago and we often have the good fortune of having my parents join us for a Shabbos dinner. 
And this is a question that for whatever reason, in the previous 50 years or so, I did not ask my father. Uh, Rav Yechiel is, is pointing out that it doesn't say necessarily that Basila says they should get divorced. That's a fair point. But exactly what are we talking about? What is Basila saying? Well, you shouldn't do it, but you can. Right. So it's a, it's a very it's all a very similar problem. <laughs> so. I asked my father this question, what in the world does Beis Hillel mean that because a woman, wife, divorce, uh, burns his, her husband's food, that the husband can divorce her? So my father said a beautiful explanation, and that's going to be explanation number one for today. And he said, the answer is that in marriage, every person has their areas of responsibility to hold up and maintain as part of their role in the marriage. And because we are Torah observant Jews, we do fully recognize that men and women are different and there are different roles for the different genders in marriage. So we're not discussing the fact that she burnt the food, we're discussing the fact that a woman who does not take her responsibility as food server provider in the marriage seriously and doesn't take it as her responsibility. In other words, doesn't really care to make sure that the food is edible. That's a woman who's not willing to live up to her responsibility in marriage. Now, she could get other help, right? There's other people who can cook or figure out how to cook better, or you make a mistake a couple of times, but you improve, right? All of that is very normal and understandable. But if the end result is that she doesn't really care whether or not she's serving edible food. That's a person that's not willing to live up to their role in a marriage. Now, of course, it's only symbolic, right? That's one area of responsibility that a person, in this case, a woman has. The same would be true if the husband didn't live up to his role. He also has to recognize, right, that this is not a good marriage if that's the way he's treating her, if he doesn't live up to his roles and responsibilities, and then we would apply that across the board to all areas of the roles of husband and wife. That's my father's explanation, which is, I think, a great idea, and it's hard to come across, you know, good ideas, good answers to this question. But I'm going to mention to you another one now, which is going to serve as the basis for much of what we're going to discuss in terms of the rest of our questions. I suggest that what the Torah is really talking about when it says that he finds something objectionable about her, and Basil says it means the wife burns the food. The man in our scenario, the newlywed who calls up his rub and says, Hey, you know, should I get divorced because this is what my wife did? The question is very deep in that does the man really think that this is a basis for divorce? So, what I'm suggesting is that if a husband has such a short fuse, in terms of his wife, that his wife burnt supper or whatever, it's inedible. And he's thinking divorce, what does that say about the true nature of their relationship? It says a lot, that the relationship is based on very little. It's a marriage of convenience. It's not a marriage of genuine intimacy and closeness. It's not a marriage of shared values. It's not a marriage where they feel partnership, where they're advocating for each other, where they're building each other up and helping each other accomplish a life mission. It's a marriage of you do for me, I do for you. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. And if you do a bad job scratching, you're out of here. 
right? That is what this guy must be thinking, because otherwise, why is he calling his rabbi and saying, hey, rabbi, what should I do? Well, what do you do when you come home late for supper? You call your rabbi and say, I came home late for supper, so therefore I should be out of here? No. What a person has to understand is that what's truly the basis of a valuable relationship is not the particular acts of service or the roles that the different genders play in the relationship. That's only a symptom of what is the foundation of the relationship. And what Basilil is saying is that if in fact a person is of such a mindset that burning or serving inedible food to the husband makes the husband feel that this is not a marriage that he should continue, then their marriage is fundamentally flawed and maybe he needs to end it. But not because the food is burnt, but because they don't have a relationship. That would be, I think, a very good explanation of Basila, which leads us to then ask the question, so what really is the foundation of a good marriage? What is the healthy basis of a good marriage? And how should a person approach intimacy? And the truth is that the whole construct of the Torah, when the Torah says that a man takes a woman, teaches us a lot. And that phrase, by the way, is repeated many places in the Torah, that a man takes a woman. And Rashi says in many places that whenever a person takes a person, it means a person talks to a person in very appropriate, convincing, meaningful ways of appeasement that cause the listener to be drawn in to what the person is saying. And therefore, a marriage is a marriage when it's one based on communication of shared values, where the husband has basically presented to his wife what he plans to do with life, who he wants to be, and it's appealing to her to be part of such a life. And she, of course, responds in kind that she wants similar values and a similar work ethic towards fulfilling a mission in life. And then they decide to do it together in partnership. That's the true basis of marriage. And so therefore the assumption is that a marriage is gonna be good and a marriage, yeah, because it's not based on what people think it's based today, which is some sort of mission of romance or being starstruck or their eyes met across the room, etc. That's not the basis of kiyikach ish isha when a man marries a woman. But another <clears throat> major indicator of that phrasing when a man takes a woman is that a woman does not take a man. That's not a Torah sanctioned, sanctioned marriage, which is why the man gives the woman consideration a ring or money. That's an act of acquisition on the part of the man. It's not what the woman does. So what is this fundamental description that the Torah is describing about marriage as a difference between a man and a woman? Is that a man is seeking a wife and a wife is being totally committed to buying into what the man is seeking and presenting his wife and the life that he wants to live. And so therefore I suggest that anytime a woman gets married, it's a total commitment. And it not only is a total commitment, but it's a tremendous, perhaps the most, um, significant act of love that a woman will do in the whole lifetime of the relationship. 
the commitment to be married to this man. And it is so for many, many reasons, but let's just say it's simply for those of us who are familiar with Fiddler on the Roof when he wants to know if his wife really loves him, right? And she says, what do you mean? I'm working as your wife for all these years. How could you even ask me such a question, right? That is what a marriage is for a woman. It's a complete act of devotion and commitment. And she is giving everything in the agreement to get married and her acceptance of the marriage proposal. She's literally giving everything. He, the husband, is taking it upon himself as a responsibility that he must provide and that he too has commitments in this relationship, but it's not the same act of love that the woman is doing with the act of marriage that the husband is doing with the act of marriage. We know this for many, many reasons, but I don't wanna to go too much into it today because I just wanna you know, kind of lay that as a foundation and then we can discuss our other questions. And so therefore, when we think about the way that the Torah presents first divorce and then marriage, part of the reason is because what the Torah is really telling us is that a marriage is not an automatic situation of happy ever after. Really, it has to be understood that problems might arise in a marriage. There might be reasons that the husband will be displeased and there might actually be a situation where the marriage is not tenable. And we have three rabbinic opinions that give us scenarios of where the marriage is not tenable. One is where he finds immorality in his wife. And I would say right off the bat that a husband has a large share of the responsibility if that's the case. And we know that from the laws of Sota, which I'm not gonna get into too much now, but it's very clear from the laws of Sota that the husband contributes to a woman possibly being you know, uh, outside of the marriage in her mind and perhaps looking uh, other places for a close relationship. There's a large percentage of that that's squarely put on the shoulders of the husband and his responsibility, even though that's not the way the Torah phrases it over here, but we definitely know that from other places in the Torah. So that is Beisham. Beisil will say, if in fact, the fuse of the husband in this relationship is so short, his temper is so easily triggered that he's thinking divorce because his wife burnt his food, that means that they are lacking in the fundamentals of a relationship. And Rabbi Akiva says, if really he's not looking to grow his relationship with his wife and he's seeking instead wishing to be married to someone else, that also is a very important indicator of the lack of genuine love, the lack of genuine values that they're sharing as partners in this marriage. <clears throat> and therefore that would also be a legitimate basis for divorce because this is not a relationship that's working. But by setting up divorce, before the Torah spe specifically mentions marriage, the Torah is telling us, I believe the following thing, that if a person is in any of these mindsets that we just mentioned, immoral behavior, burnt food, preferring another woman, there's a solution to that other than divorce. And that solution is to seek to make happy the wife that he took. That's the first major step to solving the problem. So if we ask ourselves the question, similar to what Irv Yafiel asked, 
Are these rabbis saying you should get divorced or you can get divorced? We're now going to answer they're saying you can get divorced. Well, maybe you should if you can. And if you shouldn't, then why are they saying you can? The answer is because there's other things you can do called focus on making happy the wife that you took. And for here, we have advice for all those husbands that have all their complaints about their wives. As legitimate as those complaints might be, the Torah is telling us first and foremost that if the husband will be tremendously other-centered and do everything that he can to try to bring happiness to the wife that he took, it is very likely that the marriage can be fixed and will work. Very, very likely. Why? Because since the wife already did the tremendous act of love, this kind of quintessential act of commitment by agreeing to the marriage proposal, the necessary ingredient of doing everything that he can to make happy the wife that he took is likely to fix most of the problems of the marriage. Now, I'm not saying everything, but it is the essential advice that the Torah tells us, and therefore I have confidence that it's correct, that this will solve the paragraph before that the man wants to divorce his wife. So what does it mean to make happy the wife that he took? Obviously, it's to show tremendous appreciation for her as a wife, to think about what are the things that would help ease her burden or help make her life easier or help her to feel loved and valued. All of those are part and parcel of trying to bring happiness to his wife. But then the Torah tells us an amazing thing because many husbands will balk and they'll say, hey, listen, you know, I did this and that, and, and it's still not working. She's not making me happy. You know, what about the obligation on her? That's the question that we ask. Torah is telling you, if you do this with a pure heart, if a husband really does his best effort at trying to show appreciation and valuing the wife that he married, it'll make himself happy, regardless of the effect that it has on her. So the Torah says, pause, visimach. And he will make happy. You know who he's going to make happy if he thinks about making his wife happy? Himself. Because the act of giving and the devotion and the commitment that the husband really needs on an ongoing basis in a relationship of intimacy with his wife is the focus of doing his best to make the other happy. And then he will become happy. And that itself will lead to a likely scenario where he's not going to think of anything as objectionable or obnoxious in the marriage, right? Because he's now himself a much happier person. And that's why the Torah makes a pause between the simach, he makes happy, the wife that he took. Of course, the direct object, right? The focus of the one that he's trying to make himself make happy is not himself because then it wouldn't be the wife that he took, right? It would just be make himself happy, go do whatever you want. No, that's the opposite. The Torah is saying the simach, the wife that you took, but in that process, you will also make yourself happy. So all of that is a tremendous recipe, an antidote, a healing, whatever word you want to use to he to make a marriage better, especially where it feels to the couple or to the husband like there are problems. 
But then the Torah tells us one more amazing piece of information. You know, marriages, close relationships are not easy. You know, uh, as, as somebody told me recently, um, you know, yeah, a lot of people love me, but they don't have to live with me. Right. That's uh, a whole different level. Right. Living with someone uh, on a 24 seven basis is really much harder than, you know, being their best friend, you know, a couple hours a week. So what the Torah is telling us is that really marriage is essential, which is part of my brother of Yehuda's uh, idea that the reason that the Torah juxtaposes these laws, the law of marrying a woman, being available for the year and making her happy together with the law of essential utensils that should not be collateralized in a loan arrangement, because the Torah is telling you essential utensils are a necessary component of life and marriage is an essential component of life, which is what the researchers are really saying. Intimate relationships are an essential. They're part of what helps a person literally, literally live. Right? A great point. What I would like to suggest is that what the Torah is telling us is that because in marriage we enter this kind of relationship where we do end up depending on each other so much for us to live our lives, there's a tremendous amount of tension and pressure that's created because of that. So we must remember that as much as the husband feels like, I need supper and I need it on time or, you know, the wife feels I need money and I need it now because otherwise what am I going to do? How am I going to go shopping, etc.? We can't put the pressure of the essential components of marriage on the other person, even though it really is essential. And the Torah is telling us just like in a lending relationship where maybe the only thing that is available for collateral are the utensils that a person needs to, to eat. And you can't put that pressure on the person that you lend the money to. So too in marriage, you cannot put this tremendous burden of responsibility on your partner. And this is both ways, husband to wife, wife to husband, because you so need whatever it is that they've undertaken as their role and responsibility in the relationship. It's true that you need it, but you can't put them under pressure about it. It's a tremendous recipe for for taking down, you know, the, the stress level in relationships that are struggling when we recognize that even though it's true that it's essential and we do depend on the other person and that is the construct that we've developed, we're not allowed to pressure the other person. We can ask, we can ask nicely. A lender can ask uh, the person to whom he lent money, hey, can you, you think you can pay me back? But you're not allowed to say, Listen, if you don't pay me back, you're not going to have a millstone today to grind your flour, your wheat into flour. You can't do that. Right. Listen, if you don't serve me supper today, I'm taking the credit card and I'm ripping it up. You can't do that. Not only can't you do that, you can't give them the feeling that that's what should be. And that is a tremendous recipe for shalom bias. So if we look at what are the messages that the Torah is teaching us here, about marriage and divorce and about how to value and how to evaluate an intimate relationship, we have a lot of really, really amazing information here. Number one, if a person is really having short temper in their close relationships, and you know we've been talking about marriage, but I wanna make it very clear, it's not nearly only about marriage, 
with their children, with their parents, with their best friends, with their chavrusas, with their advisors, with their students, whoever. You find yourself on a very short fuse. You have to know, this is what Basil is saying, you have to know that there's something fundamentally wrong with the relationship. How do you fix it? That's what we're going to get to in a second, but that's a huge piece of information right there. That doesn't mean you automatically get divorced, as we've explained. It doesn't mean you automatically end the relationship, but it means you have to think about what is the foundation of the relationship. Is it built on values? Is it built on life mission? Is it built on partner partnership and on advocating for each other, being best friends? Is it built on all the right things or not? You have to look at that. And then in addition, you have to look at number one, Am I doing my best to help the other one feel appreciated, valued for who they are? Do I want to make them happy? Am I thinking about doing things that would help to bring them happiness? And also, do I realize that if I do that, I will make myself happy? And also, do I realize that just because I do things to make someone happy, it's an idea I didn't mention before, but it's a very important part. You can't make anyone else happy. They have to choose to be happy themselves, no matter what you do. So you have to realize that as much as the Torah advocates for the husband to make his wife happy, he can't make her happy. That's another reason for the pause. He can do the things to try to bring about her happiness, but she has to choose happiness. Hopefully you get happy in the process and hopefully she chooses happiness and all of that will take place. But at the end of the day, that's part of what we need to be evaluating in our relationships. Are we doing things to try to help the other one choose happiness? Or instead, are we saying, I can't believe you after I did this and after I did that and you're still not happy. What's wrong with you? That is a terrible way to have a relationship. You have to recognize that pause in the Torah and say, I'm happy having the opportunity to try to make somebody that in general, I respect somebody that I chose to marry, somebody I chose to have a close relationship with them. I'm happy to have that opportunity to do those things to make them happy. But I also have to recognize that as much as we've agreed to be in a close relationship with one another, I can't make demands on them. I can't say, if you don't do this, then I don't do that, and put tremendous pressure on them, because just like we can't do that in the case of lending money, we can't do that in our closest relationships. And so therefore, the Torah is really giving us tremendous building blocks for what should a relationship be, what the values of a relationship should be, how you should evaluate what's happening in relationships and also what to do about them. So I think that when we ask ourselves, you know, how, what is the good health of our closest relationships? We now have a lot more things to look at and to ask ourselves and things to do. I'm happy to um, take anybody's questions offline if they feel it's a little bit uh, too sensitive online. If anybody wants to text me or call me, it's, these are things that, <laughs> on my side. Um, hopefully, uh, I'll finish the practical applications in the transcript uh, later this week. If anybody has any questions or comments now, let's do it. Thanks, Akiva and Mazel Tov. Thank you. Well, Rabbi, I do. Um, sorry, Sandra, I don't have my screen up. Yeah, um, perfect. What's the responsibility if the husband just decides he wants to get a divorce? So is there any responsibility fall on these men who decide that one day they don't like the way you made their eggs or you don't look whatever exactly what you were saying that Rabbi Akiva and everybody was saying that it's okay. Is does responsibility fall on them at the end to take care of these women who they decide that they no longer want to be with or does it end there? Uh, so does, first it, of does the Torah touch on that somewhere there? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what the rabbis did, 
specifically because of your question, Sandra, is something that we call the Kasuba document, uh, where from the beginning, a man has to undertake responsibilities of the marriage, but also if he decides to end the marriage, there are lots of responsibilities laid out, laid out in the Ksuba document. And in fact, if there is no Ksuba document, uh, the husband and wife are not supposed to live together. Ksuba is an essential component specifically for that reason so that people can't uh, willy-nilly marry and willy-nilly divorce. In addition to that, I would say, you know, there, there's a good expression in life that uh, the best consequences in life are the natural consequences. Right? So if he is just deciding to divorce his wife because of the eggs uh, in your example, well, <laughs> good luck with the next woman, right? Or the woman after that, because nobody's perfect. No situation is going to be perfect. And a person is looking for all their conveniences and pleasures. They're going to suffer the consequences of not having a true relationship of intimacy. I mean, I get what you're getting. I, I understand what you're saying. And it would be so fabulous if it really worked that way, but it doesn't because some of these men just leave. They don't sign a get. They leave the person they're abandoned and then they don't support her. So at the end of the day, that paper, that ketubah, they're supposed to be so respected and, 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 uh, you know, people are supposed to adhere to, they don't. And then they go to the, I'm just, I'm not venting for me. It's just that I know so many people and I'm just curious how, Sometimes when these people go to the base thing or whatever, it's not even, it's just like, oh, try to work it out. Work it out. The guy left. It's been 10 years. Nothing's happening. So where does, where does one take in the Torah, show responsibility of a person, of a man, the man in this case, not following through in his duties? His duties is, yes, yeah. you can leave. Because oh, okay. if you're not happy, you have the right mm -hmm. to leave. Right. So if you're talking specifically about uh, cases where men are being delinquent in the you know, responsibilities that they do have upon them, you're right. But the answer to your question of where does the Torah, um, you know, address that is that when we do have a proper court system, that husband would 100% be taken to task. Part of the problem that we have in this country is that, uh, you know, the Jewish court system is not allowed to take anyone to task where they go to jail themselves. As I know of cases where men who have tried to advocate for women in these situations and done things that were, let's just call extra legal, uh, they've been sent to jail. So unfortunately, we don't have the court system that we need to have, which is last week's Parsha. We don't, we're not only supposed to have judges, but also supposed to have shotrim, which a uh, better translation of shotrim than policemen is enforcers. Right. So there in the real Torah legal system, there isn't only judgment, there's also enforcement. Uh, unfortunately, mm. you don't have the ability to do that nowadays. And when people have tried to do that, you know, very often it backfires. Right, right. Uh, there okay. are other things that people do, whether it's, uh, you know, excommunication, reputation. Uh, there are other things. But at the end of the day, it can be a very difficult situation. I, I, I just also want to say, because you brought up the subject, I too know of some of those cases that you're describing. But I know many, many more cases where the husband is following through on responsibility. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. No, I mean, yeah. you know, there's always both sides to every story. Yeah. I'm just yeah. uh, agreed. You know what I mean. But thank you, yes. Rabbi. Absolutely. Excellent. Um, uh, yes. Uh, two questions. So you're not really explaining Beishamai's position because you see how. You know, he's not really agreeing to Beis Hill. Yeah, I'm, I'm really saying that uh, that even Beishamai, 
I, I didn't go into it fully, but what I would really say is that Peshama is saying that that would be more of a significant indicator, right? If the hut, if because let's talk, you know, oh, no, sort of. No, no, it comes out what you're saying is that Peshama is saying that's a greater indicator of a, of a failed marriage. So what exactly is the point? What? Failed relationship. Yeah, failed relationship. So what exactly then that leads us to try to really un understand what the deep, it's a real profound argument between Basil and Beishamai. That yes. That's that, I mean, I, not maybe it's not for the place here to discuss it, but you see yes. there's a definite indication of extremely profound difference in understanding how the relationship is not working between the two of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah and also like when can a person get divorced? Right, like Bishama would be saying that unless it deteriorates to that extent, the person yes. really shouldn't get divorced. So he would be much more of the stick-to-itiveness nature, so to speak. Uh, but you're right; it, a lot more work should be done there. And then, and then the other question is: so now let's. I just to bring out the point very. Um, uh, well, how was it? A very. I wouldn't use the word clearly, but in terms of uh, the the. Catholic, uh, you know, doctrine of not allowing divorce. What does that show about their understanding of marriage? To the point that if you divorce, I think it's in the New Testament says you're going to burn in hell or something like that. I mean, what does that show about the non-Jew their their perspective of marriage? Yeah, so I I think what it shows, which is similar to the fundamental difference between service to God in Catholicism, Mahavil and more to Judaism is that they prize form over substance. Uh -huh. right? It's Judaism. We're saying, listen, it's got to somehow get to be a good marriage or else. No, it shouldn't be. You shouldn't be married. Right. But really you're supposed to be getting to a good marriage. Whereas Catholicism would be saying, no, the only thing that really matters is marriage. Therefore, if the pregnancy happened, no problem, just get married. Whereas in Judaism, that's not an option. You know, it's not about marriage; it's about having a good, healthy relationship. Okay, no, I just wanted to. Yeah, you know, there's a lot more. There's and, and there's another aspect as well. According to Yitzhak Galevi, in general, I mean, in general, besides him, but simply understood in the Gemara, it's extremely difficult to claim that Rav Kiva is always a third position. Because you have Peshama and Basil, so Rishikai is always saying in his, you know, uh, uh, forum on on the Talmud that Rebekim is just an another uh, understanding of Beis Hillel. You know, there's no real yeah, free position. There's, you know, there's, yeah, possible, impossible. No, uh -huh. yeah, I'm just saying. But yeah. what would, what was problematic? What I pointed out in my first um, chat was why can't What's the problem of Ravikiva just marrying the second wife? Why do you have to get rid of the first wife? Yeah, I mean, yes, we're going with, with that kind of marriage, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my answer to that question would be, though, that uh, it's a terrible position to put the first wife in. Um, in other words, there's a possibility of Snu and Ahuva. Right. Uh-huh. Because we're really saying, yeah, you know, you're not so good. I'll keep you around, but this one is the one I really want, you know. And now she's stuck to you, and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really and not. Then, cool and position. that's what that was that was being played out between Leia and Rifkin, in other words, and Leia and Rothko. Yeah, perhaps that's another conversation. No, yeah. I'm just saying the Torah itself calls her a snoo. Yeah, yeah. My my opinion is that that's the way she perceives. Okay, well, well, 
Well, true, we'll true, but the, I mean, just we just had the psukim, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm going to get to Frida's question. Um, Rabbi, I'm thank in. you. Um, very insightful. And I don't know if this is the appropriate um, place for this question, but um, you, you started by talking about uh, reducing stress in relationships and an observation uh, based on my uh, stage of life is that many of the people I know who have second marriages um, have a lot of stress based on the relationships of the uh, first families and how it interplays. Uh, they have shared values that they wanna quote, build these families and make one happy family and it doesn't always work. So my question, if it's appropriate here is, if one of the partners are so stressed that they want this and they will go to any means to make it happen where it separates the other partner from his from his family of origin, his children, because of the negative relationships that exist between the new husband or wife and the children, is that allowed? Shouldn't the uh, spouse's well-being and stress be minimized and shouldn't there be a different strategy? I understand the need for wanting the happy altogether family, but if it causes one of the partners who becomes a senior and is it's challenging to the, where he separates from his own children as a result of this, there is a tension that I've observed so often, you know, it's like kind of makes me wonder about where I want to be, you know, and uh, the reality is I'm not sure are you how that weighs into a marriage, a second marriage in terms of where the priorities should be and how this should be handled if one of the partners are getting sick and separated from his kids. Or her yeah, so obviously, like, uh, like so many things in life, it really depends. But um, I would say that you are correct to equate a person's relationship with his children or her relationship with her children from a first marriage to utensils that are essential for living. Thank right? you. So just, like, just like the, uh, you know, what the Torah is saying about the, the, the lending, the Torah would be saying about all things in a marriage that a person really needs from the other spouse. We have to really be careful not to deprive uh, our spouse from the things that they need, but we also can't put them under tremendous pressure for the things that we need. So it's, it's a very difficult line to, to tiptoe because we think we need things and we can't put them under you know, total pressure to get the things that, that we need. Um, but at the same time, we have to provide them for the things that they need. So it, it's a delicate balance. The good news is, is that in my experience anyways, uh, that where people are more of a giving than just a taking type and self-responsible, these things tend to really not be big issues. Now, people have to train themselves to be givers and to be self-responsible, to not be demanding. Uh, when, when you have personalities like that, most of these issues uh, are not uh, bad at all. Okay. I have some I appreciate it. I, I just happened to be witnessing something ex exactly at this moment. And yeah. the it's unbelievable because this, this is something that is so prevalent. Yeah, but if you ask yourself, is the person causing all the stress and more of a selfish person and more of a selfless person, what's the answer? 
Well, obviously, if one's needs go beyond their partner's uh, ability to stay healthy, it's very obvious. But the, the question becomes, especially because people are older and it's complicated, how they want to deal with the character they own. If they don't yeah. want to deal with it, they're making their partner and the family divide. Yeah. And um, I, I just, um, you know, I just wanted to be sure that my own feeling was that the ultimate Trump is that if one person is getting sick and divided from his ch child, I think you gave me what I needed by saying that it is an essential tool to have a healthy relationship, especially as you get older with your children. Yeah. And, and that other partner needs to step back perhaps a little bit and give it a little space. Yeah. That, that, that you've given me something to work with and I appreciate That's it. Good. Thank you. Okay, thank you everyone. It was a pleasure to be back. Is your father, is uh, the Rosh Yeshiva? No, not today. No, not today. Okay. Thank you for sharing that, Rabbi. Thank you. Okay. Have a, day. Bye -bye. Have a good, great day, everyone. Thank you. It was thank a wonderful you. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.